Welcome to Biblical Higher Ed Talk, where we tap into the wisdom of leaders and practitioners of biblical higher education for the advancement of colleges and universities teaching the way of Christ in the modern world. Each week, we'll tackle topics around leading your organization, expanding your impact in the world, and deepening your faith through Christ-centered conversations. Ready to make a difference in the lives of your faculty, staff, and students? Then let's begin our journey. Today on Biblical Higher Ed Talk, I sit down with James Spencer, president of Useful to God, to talk about what it means to be a Christ follower in an increasingly secular context. How should our theology inform our behavior? Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Philip Dearborn, president of the Association for Biblical Higher Education. And we are honored to have as our guest this week, James Spencer. James is the president of Useful to God, an organization focused on challenging the church to defy the world and follow Christ through discipleship. He's served and taught in biblical higher education for several years. Uh, He's also authored some books, his most recent work titled Serpents and Doves, Christian Politics and the Art of Bearing Witness, which sounds like an absolutely fascinating read. We'll be sure to put a link in the description. He's a deep thinker who lives and writes about the intersection of faith and practice. And I've invited James to talk about what it means to live as a Christ follower in an increasingly pluralistic and secular culture. So welcome, James. Glad that you're able to to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Phil. It's good to be here. So to kick off our conversation so our audience can get to know you a little bit, talk to us about a defining moment that you had in your life that God used that propelled you forward either in your professional or your personal life. Yeah, I think... You know, my professional and my personal life sort of intersected at one time. I was working as a, an assistant dean in an online education division at a, at a Bible college. And it just seemed like everything was going wrong. Online, especially when I was involved with it, was sort of the lesser of the disciplines, let's say. Um, it wasn't something that everybody at an institution really embraced fairly readily. And so it just felt like the whole organization was sort of against us. And I remember driving home one night with my wife and kind of telling her all the woes that I was going through. And she listened and was very kind to listen to my little mini rant. And at the end of it, I said, you know, so what do you think? And she said, I think you're delusional. So she kind of went on to clarify and she just said, you know, not everything that's going on at the institution has to do with what you're doing with online. Mm -hmm. She said a lot of it has to do with other decisions that are being made that have nothing to do with anything that you would ever care about or even know about. Right. And she works in healthcare. She's a, a healthcare administrator. And so she was used to working in a really complex context and honestly had been in upper level leadership positions that I hadn't really been in yet. I was still an assistant dean at the time. And it was just a really helpful reminder, I think a helpful lesson for me to realize that not every decision in an organization is about me or my department or, you know, has some sort of, you know, strategic bent against what my division is trying to do. Sometimes there's other things going on. Yeah. And I think I carried that with me in my leadership and consulting going forward as I looked at organizations and said, this is a really complex system. How do we lead within a complex system? Mm -hmm. 
and you know where are all the different pain points and so i i think that was really one of those moments that i will always remember in part just because it's kind of funny she called me delusional but in part, I think because she was right, I was a little delusional. So you, you you don't have to share. Was that the only time that she called you delusional in your in your relationship? <laughs> she, she, she and I have had different tough conversations, but I think that's the only time she's called me delusional. Usually, once she points it out, I'm able to sort of pivot and get away from it. But yeah, it's a good point about leadership and our experience in organizations because there's this thing we spin narratives, and we typically we're the center of our narrative and mm. everything that happens in our experience within the organization, we somehow build this narrative that the whole thing is against us. And in reality, right. that's simply not the case, but yeah. we like to spin our own narratives. Yeah, definitely. And I think what I had to learn was just to sort of take a step back from the personal feelings I was having and look at things a little bit more objectively, ask more questions and uh, not be so on the defensive about yeah. everything. Yeah. That's really carried with me. I think it made me a calmer human being in all walks mm -hmm. of life. Yeah. So. Yeah. Good. So much of your work revolves around the intersection of, of theology and, and behavior, how we live. So how we think as Christ followers drives then how we live, theology informing our behavior. But I think one of the things that we see in, in around us today is that oftentimes behavior informs our theology, the, the reverse of it. Is this unique to our time or has this always been the case in the Christian experience? I think it's always been the case. I mean, we can go back all the way to something like Malachi 3.10, right? Mm -hmm. Malachi 3, where the Israelites are having a little bit of a food shortage, and they decide that this experience of food shortage should drive the way that they treat God in offering or in precluding their mm -hmm. sacrifices at the temple. And in, in Malachi 3.10, God just says, hey, test me in this and bring me all the sacrifices. And so I think what's going on there is the pragmatic concerns of the moment begin to encroach on our personal theological convictions. We start to, as the parable of the sower might say, we start to get uh, caught up in the worries and wealth of the world mm -hmm. and pursuing those things and really not allowing God's word to take root in our lives so that we are good soil where our faith can grow. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a problem throughout church history, throughout even our times, we tend to get a little too pragmatic for our own good and forget that obedience is actually our best strategic option always. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we really remember that. I know I don't. Yeah. And you hear a lot, I think, culturally today, particularly within Christian circles who are leveraging that criticism of they look around as if this is something new, that behavior has shaped our theology. And you make a great point that that is that's perhaps the human condition, the result of sin. Even going back to what you talked about, what your wife challenged us on, that experience dictates what we define as our reality. Very much. I don't think it's a new thing. I think what ends up happening uh, a lot of times is we look around and we see new things happening. Mm -hmm. And as we see the the symptoms or pathologies that arise from those new things that are happening, we suddenly think that this is all new. Mm -hmm. But I don't think the dynamic is really that different. Um, mm -hmm. The dynamic is always we as humans tend to see obstacles in our way. And rather than, you know, taking a step back and allowing God to care for those obstacles for us or to 
shine through us as we even don't overcome some of those obstacles. Instead of doing that, we just run full force and try to move the obstacle ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a basic human dynamic that we're always going to deal with. It's never really going to be solved until the new creation. It's just one of those things we're always going to have with us. Yeah. Yeah. Switching gears. One of the, one of the things that we experience and has been really part of culture and, and technology specifically is artificial intelligence. And it's actually been around for a little bit. We've been using artificial intelligence and and not even knowing it, but it's definitely something that's kind of come up onto the, uh, uh, our, our experience in a, in a, in a bigger way. And I'm seeing all kinds of Christian response to it. Some of it being that it's the most evil thing that could potentially have come our way, others who are leveraging it for good. As you think about AI, even related to the first question that we worked through, how, how can we leverage it to encourage theological thinking then that drives our behavior, connecting those two dots? Well, I definitely think AI, like anything else, has its upsides and downsides. Uh, I think that Christians probably should be concerned about philosophies that look to AI as the savior of all things. We know who the savior of all things is. It's Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. These new technologies are going to be helpful in some ways. They're going to be detrimental in some ways, but I'm much more inclined to think that there are no solutions. There's only trade-offs. That's a Thomas Sowell paraphrase. Go a little bit deeper with that. Sure. Let's say AI has all these things that we can do that it allows us to do these things so much more efficiently, Mm -hmm. right? So chat GPT can answer questions for us. There's actually a module that allows teachers to write lesson plans, you know, they just put in a subject, type in a few other things. And in five minutes, you've got a full semester's lesson plan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that efficiency seems good to us. But I would be I would challenge that and just say, sometimes efficiency can be good for us. Other times efficiency is going to lead us down a path that is going to have negative implications that we're just not foreseeing. Now, luckily, we have a lot of dystopian novels and movies and stuff like that out, right, where we can start to see what inefficiency might do. Mm-hmm. But the way I think of it is I was a personal trainer through my MDiv, and I never once brought a client in and said, OK, for today's workout, I just want you to stand on the side and watch me work out. Mm-hmm. That has no benefit to them. Mm-hmm. The actual effort they put in in working out is the secret sauce of getting fit. Mm-hmm. There's no way to outsource it. There's no way to farm it out. And so what I see in artificial intelligence as one of the trade-offs potentially is that we're not going to be particularly discerning about what efficiencies will actually help us mm-hmm. versus where we're giving away okay. effort that could actually form and shape us into strong human beings. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that we're right to push back against it. My concern with it overall, the Christian response to it has been just Nothing is usually, I, I would say almost always, there's an overstatement of how negative this could be. I do think there are positive benefits to it. But where I sort of kick back and start is to say, if artificial intelligence is going to be this new thing, what we need to understand is how it's going to change the way we understand ourselves as humans. And so this is obviously going to take away different interactions, it's going to take away different effort, it's going to take away all these different things that could potentially shape us into different humans. And we really don't have a good understanding of how that's going to work. Hmm. And so I think we, we should be questioning the speed with which these things are implemented and applied. I think we should be questioning the benefits of efficiency in every case. I think we should be questioning whether or not we really want um, a machine 
to be giving us answers to questions and shaping our opinions and perspectives. So those are all things I think we should definitely be wary of. Mm -hmm. But I would say that even those things are not that different from what we've had in the publishing industry or the internet age forever. You know, we've always sort of outsourced to some of that and said, well, a publisher can decide which book's important for me to read and what access information I have. And so it's a different sort of control, a different sort of gatekeeper, let's say. But I don't think it's wholly different from what we've experienced in the past. Right, right. As we look at the benefits, though, I mean, you know, the ability to uh, study. I mean, we've seen computer aided biblical study sort of platforms like a Logos Bible software and Accordance or those kind of things. They do make the Bible more accessible for those who understand how to go about studying the Bible and using those tools to dig deep into the biblical text. Mm -hmm. And so I could see AI working in a very similar way. Mm -hmm. It allows people who are really trying to study and understand God's word to get there faster, maybe to get there deeper, to pull better sources, to find, you know, information that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Where I think the line that's crossed for me, where I say this probably isn't the best thing is when those platforms, and I would say this about software platforms or AI, begin to make too many decisions for me. Mm -hmm. In other words, they start telling me what information is relevant and irrelevant, depending on how they display the information, what, you know, sort of graphs they generate, what Mm -hmm. passages they point to. I still think that there is, it is up to the individual interpreter to decide what is and what is not relevant. Is that a hard line or is that a a, a fuzzy line? I think it's a fuzzy line. And for me, there are just some, there are some hard lines in there, right? Mm -hmm. I would never go to an AI platform and say, write me a sermon on X and then Mm -hmm. preach that sermon. Mm -hmm. I, I don't feel like that's an appropriate way for Christians to be handling this. I think that it, it suggests something about who we become as a community that we've said, no, the pastor should be involved in everything. Preaching the sermon isn't really that important. Let's farm that out to artificial intelligence so the pastor can do a better job managing the church. Mm-hmm. And I would just kind of sit back and, and say, you know, those sort of scenarios, I think, really do say something more about the church mm-hmm. than they do about artificial intelligence as a technology. Yeah, The fact that we're using them for that says more about us than it does about it. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is sponsored by ABHE, the Association for Biblical Higher Education. At ABHE, bringing the love and light of Christ to the world is reflected in our drive to see our member institutions flourish, leading them to a time of success for their institution and giving them the tools and insights they need to look toward the future. Interested in learning more about membership with ABHE? Visit us at abhe.org. Or send us an email to membership at abhe.org. ABHE is your partner committed to advancing biblical higher education for kingdom impact. Now, back to the show. How do you think and process through, okay, so perhaps one of the dangers of artificial intelligence is just how there is no regulator to it. It's instantaneous. It's So you go down that rabbit hole of engaging with it, and before you know it, uh, you've crossed one of those lines, whether it's a hard line or a, or a fuzzy line. How, how should Christians engage with that to kind of put up those those regulators or those, those markers to know, okay, I'm kind of crossing into some a, an area that perhaps I, I shouldn't be? So I, I did a whole 
piece on artificial intelligence, actually a free download that people could get. But the idea that I had was I'm going to go to the AI modules, which ChatGPT was the one that was really available at the time. And I'm going to go at it with a clear intention of asking it questions. And I'm going to do that for a specific amount of time. And then I'm going to write that up. In other words, my scope was pretty clear, right? I wasn't yeah. going to rabbit hole further yeah. than I yeah. wanted to. Yeah. And, and so I think going at this with an intentional purpose and not being tempted, the, the way these things tend to work, if we think about it like a car, we do this all the time, right? So we, I have, a, I have let's say I have an old Jeep and I kind of like my old Jeep. And then Jeep comes along and says, well, you can get these aftermarket parts and you could jack it up and you could put big headlights on the front of it and you can do, you know, all these different things to it. And you see another Jeep driving around your neighborhood and they've got all this stuff on it. You go, oh, wow, that would be really cool. Yeah. But the reality is I'm just happy with my old Jeep. There's no need to improve it. I don't actually need to allow, you know, some artificial dissatisfaction to push me into buying products to improve my old Jeep. Mm -hmm. I'm good. Yeah. And, but with AI, I think we're going to see a very similar thing. We're going to go at it and we're going to say, okay, here's the purpose I need this for. This is how it's going to make my life a little easier. This is exactly how I want to use artificial intelligence. And then all of a sudden there's going to be something else. Mm -hmm. There's going to be something else. And people are going to use it for these neat ideas or they're going to do something really cool with AI and you go, wow, I could have done that. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden what you had was no longer, is no longer good enough. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to just sort of settle in and, and ask ourselves, are we actually content? Hey, are we content with what we're achieving? Are we content with what we're producing? And if the world outpaces that, yeah, maybe there are some instances where we need to change. I just, I'm really convinced that a lot of the times we're throwing away good old stuff yeah. in order to pursue new stuff that really isn't that significant. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good, that's a good illustration. I, I love how you connected that even with the trade-offs at the beginning. And as Christ followers, I do think it's important, just like anything that we experience that, that yeah. we walk into it. And it goes back to our first question, right? Of how do we right. allow the experiences to dictate our theology, to our theology. That's so right. we go into it with a framework and a structure and we interpret it accordingly, recognizing right. the fact that everything that is created is good but can also be used for evil. So how do you create those boundaries as you go through? So just like anything else that comes our way, we need yeah. to think through it and, and process through it. Have you done much reading and thinking through the AI's hallucination? One of, one of the biggest issues is it creates things that potentially aren't true. Is that something that it's going to move away from? Possibly. You know, right now, I think the last thing that I read on it, nobody really understands why AI hallucinates the way it mm -hmm. does. Mm -hmm. My best guess, and this is a total guess, is that AI is a purposed technology. Mm -hmm. In other words, it has a goal that it's trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And so it will achieve that goal whether or not it's able to give a truthful, inform truthful information along the way or not. It is a little bit scary to think that truth is less significant for AI than it might be for us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we think about artificial intelligence, there is a way to anthropomorphize it, to personalize it, to make it seem like it's got the same sort of intelligence or feelings or perspectives that humans might have. It doesn't. It's just a set of interlocking sort of mechanisms that approximate one aspect of the way humans might think. Mm -hmm. And so truth doesn't necessarily factor into what they're looking at. 
I personally, I think one of the biggest misconceptions about artificial intelligence is that it's unbiased. Yeah. So if I went out there and I asked AI, you know, um, I'm having trouble with anxiety, how would you suggest that I relax? I actually did this. It does not talk about prayer. Mm -hmm. Now, prayer, if you look at the research literature, it actually has a significant effect on reducing stress and anxiety, mm -hmm. just from a quantitative perspective, right? No faith necessarily involved with it. The act of prayer has that sort of impact. Mm -hmm. It doesn't list it because it's programmed not to offer religious opinions. Well, that's empirical data, yeah, right? right. But it, won't, it still won't list it. But it'll still list yoga, meditation, those kind of things, which also have empirical value. But yeah. prayer generally outpaces them. So we're not even getting the best information yeah. from AI yeah. because of the way it's biased yeah. in some yeah. of that information. And somewhere along the line, a human had to program it. Ultimately, programs are, yeah. are zeros and ones. And right. so, some somebody had to make a binary decision of we're going to push religion or we're not going to push religion. Well, that's, that's right. a human that did that. And therefore the result artificial intelligence is still dependent on that, on that that's human right. element, which yeah. I think is a great call for our institutions. You know, where, where are computer programmers being trained? Do we have, do we address that in our curriculum on our campuses? Are we producing thought leaders in this space who talk about the morality and ethic of programming AI, because really it's up to who knows somebody somewhere in the Silicon Valley is making these decisions. And I think it's an opportunity for us to influence as Christ followers, a, a sector that could impact future AI generation. Agreed. I mean, I think it's definitely a necessity because the way I view, the way I would think about AI going is I don't think it's going to be, a lot of times AI is pictured as sort of an omnipotent God. Mm-hmm. Right. It, there's one AI and it's sort of a solid state AI and there's only one of them where I tend to think of AI as the Greek gods. It's going ah. to be a pantheon of AIs yeah. that are checking one another, collaborating with one another, sort of interacting with one another. And you're already seeing this in the military space. They're already doing from a cybersecurity perspective, creating AIs that will um, fight against other AI models mm -hmm. in order to come to a stalemate. Mm hmm. And so essentially you're teaching AI to, to play highly technical and complex games of tic-tac-toe. Wow. Wow. So you spent some of your career in biblical higher education. So you have that as an experience. Now you're out of it, but you're still engaged in scholarly work and the elements that we've talked about. I believe biblical higher education is uniquely positioned to help students think through these very issues. What would you say we are doing well as a sector? And then what would you say are, are we struggling with? Well, I think what's going well is just an ongoing commitment to biblical interpretation. Mm -hmm. I, I think that the Bible, viewing the Bible as the final authority for life and faith is something that all ABHE institutions really commit to and do well. Mm -hmm. And unlike certain other types of organizations, even like Christian colleges, which have a, I think in my perception, a broader span of how they integrate the Bible into different curricula, biblical higher education institutions tend to keep the Bible fairly central and really sit underneath that authority. Now that said, I think the, the practical aspect of working that out in a curriculum is often difficult. Mm -hmm. And so where I'd say, I think Bible colleges could really improve is rethinking those curricula. Mm -hmm. I know that there's an old, and when I was a dean, one of my 
pet peeves was we always had Old Testament survey and New Testament survey, and we had the staples of the academic discipline. But then we'd watch our students struggling with things like the intersection of faith and politics. We'd watch them struggling with the intersection of faith and technology and all these different areas where they needed something to help them bridge between the Bible and their practice. And our curriculum really wasn't built to do that until maybe the upper levels. Uh And so by sticking with the academic disciplines, I think there's absolute value in those academic disciplines, but Mm -hmm. I think that we've maybe boxed ourselves in a little too hard into those academic disciplines. Mm -hmm. And we need to be more creative in the way that we structure the curricula to help students move from a Bible college, which is in a lot of ways, sort of a safe haven, Mm -hmm. right? Into the real world, which is only going to get more complex. Yeah. And we talk about biblical integration, faith integration all the time. And you're exactly right. I think one of the one of the fallacies that we've made is, well, you know, in your lower level freshman, sophomore courses, it's just about survey, 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 content, information. And then at some point in the junior and senior level curriculum, we'll find some way to connect those dots. And we assume it happens it by just because we've you know, designed it that way as opposed to some intentionality of making those connections and making those connections early. And I've often said that about our curriculum. We assume that the students are making all of those connections in their curriculum. We've set it up high in a, in a proper scope and sequence, but mm-hmm. it, it's going to take the the professors. It's going to take the engagement in the classroom to actually start to connect those dots for students. And, and they're ready for it. They're ready for it in their first year. I think they're hungry for it because they, th- based off of their experience, their K to 12 experience, particularly if it was in a public school setting, they're coming in saying, okay, help, help me reconcile what I've been taught with what the yeah. word of God says. And we're like, well, you're not ready for that yet. You need to wait till your junior or senior year. And then it ultimately doesn't happen. And arguably, they're more than ready for it. They're in need of it. I think with the social media explosion and all of the different perspectives, uh, I'll be kind and call them perspectives, uh, that you can get on social media uh, these days, I think they absolutely need it. They need to understand how to look at a claim, someone's perspective, and really deeply engage with it without accepting it. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we're seeing this work itself out in a variety of different ways as we're, you know, sort of watching the various conflicts around the world and the perspectives that are ultimately built on different arguments. But it doesn't really feel like anybody's actually engaging those arguments. They're just Mm -hmm. adopting a perspective. And my concern, and and I think what I saw as a a dean um, when I was in biblical higher ed, is that students really were seeking to be two things. They wanted to be theologically and biblically faithful. They, I don't think they were giving up orthodoxy in most cases, mm-hmm. but they were also struggling to sort of engage with societal values mm-hmm. and try to understand how to fit and work with, a, a, in our context, American society. Mm-hmm. And those two don't always go together. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so you can have political uh, dis- and and positions that you hold that are antithetical to biblical and theological convictions. Mm -hmm. And so how do we help students understand how to navigate that sort of a matrix, especially today when politics is more polarized 
you know, than it has been in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're consulting with a curriculum committee at one of our schools, how, how do you even, is this like a, is this like a throw out the old way and start blank slate with a brand new approach to, to, to how we educate and, and connect those dots? My tendency has been to question some underlying assumptions. You know, one of the ones that I usually uh, try to address is exposure really doesn't do that much unless it has to do with radiation. You're not really doing that that much with exposure. Yeah. And so instead of changing your curriculum, though, maybe what you can do is you can build in some mechanisms to help students engage as they're going through something like a survey course. Mm-hmm. You know, do I think it's helpful for students to have a broad understanding of scripture before they really start embarking on deeper levels? Sure. Mm-hmm. But I also think that as you're giving them that broad storyline, you could also teach them a little bit of how to focus, mm-hmm. how to integrate. Mm-hmm. And beginning those things earlier doesn't necessarily mean a complete renovation of your curriculum, although it could. But I think it could also just be be an assignment that's built into an earlier course or something like that. So I don't think it's, hey, throw everything out. I'm not really that guy. I think it's more of a let's think of a more tailored approach and let's not, you know, just default to what has disciplinarily been done. You know, I work a lot with seminaries, Phil. And so, you know, MDiv curriculum is usually just MDiv curriculum. Like there's, there's not a whole lot of variation. If you were going to point to some schools that have different MDivs, there are some out there, but most of the time it's the same old stock basic mm-hmm. courses and you yeah. could almost cut and paste from one seminary to another. I find that lamentable because mm-hmm. I think these seminaries have different faculty, they have different ethos, they have different culture. And so why not have a tailored curricula that yeah. isn't just disciplinary in nature? Yeah. And that's where I would tend to start is to say, what are you really trying to do with these students? What are your strengths and weaknesses on a faculty? What do you have that's special about you? Mm -hmm. And why aren't we coding that into the curriculum? Yeah. And even connecting it back to our conversation on AI, how better to help students engage that aspect, the goods and the bads of it that incorporate it into the curriculum, you know, incorporate it into the assignments, incorporate it into the conversation so that it's not this unknown thing. It's something that they can be taught how to engage with. Yeah. I mean, I found a great deal of, of research on how to do super prompting with AI. So how to ask it questions to elicit the responses you're looking for, Mm -hmm. which is a new research skill that probably we need to be teaching students. But then I, I will say, I also found a great deal of benefit from going in and evaluating the arguments that AI was responding back to me with. Yeah. And yeah. trying to push it to a point where it would just have to sort of surrender and say, well, listen, I don't have that opinion. I'm just an AI model, yeah. right? <laughs> and you could yeah. get it there. Yeah. So I think it's really important for them to interact. It's a, yeah. it's something that seems like it's here to stay yeah. and we need to understand how to yeah. use it and yeah. what it's going to do. And, and, and then however we end up actually using it, different story. Exactly. Exactly. Well, James, we could fill a whole nother uh, episode with this. We've come to the end. So thank you very much for sharing your wisdom uh, and your experiences with us today. Uh, And if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to find out a little bit more about uh, James and his work and uh, his most recent book uh, that I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, please do go to his website. It's thejamesspencer.com. We'll be sure to put that as a link in the description as well as a link to James's newest book that will be uh, coming out shortly. So until next time, stay kingdom focused.
Thanks for listening to Biblical Higher Ed Talk. For more, follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're delighted that you chose to spend a part of your day with us and encourage you to reach out to us with feedback, topics, or guests for the show. You can get in touch with Philip, your host, via LinkedIn or at biblicalhigheredtalk at abhe.org. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is a production of the Association for Biblical Higher Education in association with Westport Studios. Views expressed on this show are those of the participants and may not reflect the views of ABHE or Westport Studios. Bring light and life to your biblical higher educational organization by inquiring about membership with ABHE at abhe.org. We'll catch you next time.